Greetings, I'm Keith Klein, the host of the VentureFizz podcast, where I interview the most fascinating people in the tech scene. This is episode 186, and today's guest is Susan Conover, co-founder and CEO of Lumen DX. Did you know that 2.3 billion people in the world seek help for skin issues every year? Two-thirds of these cases are evaluated by non-specialists, and the shocking statistic is that 50% of these cases are misdiagnosed. It's a challenge because there are not enough dermatologists, and most physicians only spend one week learning dermatology in medical school. So what if you could leverage AI and computer vision to help physicians quickly and accurately identify skin conditions? It sounds like a perfect use case for AI, and this is exactly what LumenDX is doing. The company recently closed a $2 million seed round of funding led by Argon VC. In this episode of our podcast, we cover lots of great topics, like advice for founders on how to give an awesome demo day pitch, Susan's background story and her time in academia, how Susan's diagnosis with melanoma when she was 22 years old led to the creation of Lumen DX, all the details on Lumen DX and the evolution of the company, her experience raising funding as a female founder, and so much more. Okay, quick side note. Did you know that you can set up a user profile on VentureFizz? It is a new feature that gives you access to personalized content, job seeker tools, and administrative features to manage your email subscriptions. To create a user profile and maximize your experience on VentureFizz, go to VentureFizz.com backslash register to get started. All right, without further ado, here's my interview with Susan. Susan, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Uh, so we're going to talk about Lumen DX, which is a company that's uh, super exciting because it's something that, you know, you need to make sure you have healthy skin and how it's helping with that and helping fill the void is very interesting. So um, we'll get into the weeds of that. But what I thought would be interesting is you've, ex you've participated in a couple of accelerators, uh, Techstars, Mass Challenge. And when I watched your Techstars demo day pitch, I thought it was really well done. I mean, you factored in some really you know, humorous elements, and I noticed that you have done improv in the past. So what advice would you give to other founders that are like, oh my God, I have to do this pitch. I only have so many minutes on stage, and how do I captivate the audience and hopefully get the interest from investors? Yeah, it's a few different things. Happy to, to help out with that. Um, I think for one thing, the, the humor component. For me, at least, uh, it was sticking to my strengths and like, like one of the ways that I connect with people and resonate with people is jokes and humor. And so I think there's more like, of that these days. <laughs> yeah, definitely. And so uh, that was super um, helpful and useful to like incorporate and think through what are my strengths and how do those come out in this, um, in this pitch. Um, but I think also just, I, I actually identify as not, as good of a storyteller. Uh, I know a lot of other people who are much better at it. And so for me, it was really about iteration. I think we went through it like 10 times with other people who like empathize and understand how investors think um, and, and how do we lay this out in a sequential way. Also uh, thinking through what are the unique and interesting things uh, about our company that are different than other people's and just doing like a mind map of organizing all that information and then figuring out where things layer in, that was really helpful as well. Um, but I, I can't say <laughs> good enough things about the Techstars program. They were so helpful and wonderful in, in figuring out how to craft that, um, that demo day pitch. So when you walked up there, you're like, well, this is my company, I've got this, or was there like a lot of like 
you know, anxiousness, kind of butterflies in the stomach type of feeling? Like, how did you overcome that if you did? Oh, man. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I don't, I think it's a continuous battle. Um, I think a lot of us, uh, but including me, have imposter syndrome. So we're like, why do I get to get on a stage in front Mm -hmm. of like a thousand people? That doesn't make sense. But um, uh, I think it was just like practice and iteration and like leaning into it. When I did a one-on-one class, uh, which in improv, which is how I met my co-founder, right before we get on stage for like student showcase, uh, this the teacher walked us through this exercise that was like that nervousness, that energy, that's coming from a place because you care, and that's like good energy to channel into this rather than letting it like take you out of your head use that energy to help you do this. And so like thinking through that was really helpful, reflecting back on that moment. That's such a, that's so true. Yeah, like, cause you care, just like, I don't know if you were competing in a sporting event and you have those pregame jitters, right? I've actually had friends that would actually vomit before the game, not because they were sick, but just because they were so like, you know, fired up to play and just, you know, knew that this is an important game or something that, so obviously they would perform well on the field, but um, that is so, so true. Well, let's talk about your background. So where'd you grow up? What were you like as a child? Um, So I'm originally from Denton, Texas, which is about 30 minutes north of Dallas and um, definitely strongly identify as a Texan. Um, I think there are a lot of Texas Texans who end up becoming entrepreneurs, but um, I, th- I don't know how to describe myself in the best way. I think I was always trying new things. Uh, so I went through a lot of different hobby phases, a lot of different breakfast phases uh, as a kid, um, and just really liked, um, Big, you know, figuring things out as I go. Like I, I went through a, a bracelet, <laughs> you know, those little bracelets that you can braid and give to your friends. That, yeah, that big, yeah. uh, the little ironing, um, little wax beads into different shapes, a lot of different like creative things. Mm-hmm. Um, I think in adulthood, I have fewer creative things. And so now I do improv for for that to, to keep that energy alive because I think it's really easy to just sort of get down a path and say like what's the most efficient way to live my life and then you <laughs> you, know, you wind up without creativity uh, I could ask the same question to you like like why do you love doing podcasts I just love the the entrepreneurial story like I just for whatever reason well I, I guess I probably do know the reason like I grew up in a household where my dad was an entrepreneur and he never had a job for anyone else for as long as I was born. So I just kind of fed off of him. And then, um, you know, when I did have like a job working for another company, I would still listen to the founder's journey. Like when I used to have like a, you know, like the first edition iPod or whatever, second edition with the click wheel, like I would download the podcast from Jason Calacanis onto my iPod, you know, cause you couldn't, stream anything so uh so yeah i just you know i love the story i love how i built this with guy raz so it's just a lot of content that i consume and just with venture fizz i'm fortunate to be able to uh to do the same that's amazing yeah it's interesting to tie your parents into it my parents are professors and so i think i always grew up thinking like how do i think about this in a smarter way right what's the process to get there because it's like your your mindset that can really really drive the direction that you go, but how do you know it's the right one? Um, and so I think, you know, moving to Boston, 
it's just this environment where everyone has this attitude of like, how do I, you know, uh, think about this in a smarter way. And everyone has their book on their bedside table that they're <laughs> reading or they're meaning to read. Um, and I've always really identified with that. And I think that's what entrepreneurship is, right? Is like, how do I think about the world in a way that other people haven't realized and see if there's a market there? And was that why, like, so you decided to study mechanical engineering at UT Austin, which is a great, great engineering school. So is that kind of what led you down the path of, of pursuing that choice of study? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So I, uh, I was always good at math and science and, um, and I, it was, it was almost like a process of elimination. Like, I know I don't want to do petroleum engineering. <laughs> Aerospace yeah. seems really specific. Uh, chemical I could do, but I think um, I've always loved kinematics and like, you know, the ball bounces, understanding, you know, physics uh, and, and how things work. And so I think that brought me to mechanical engineering because it's, you know, programming and like microelectronics all the way up to bridges and, you know, larger structures and like heat transfer in that kind of degree, there's so many different things that you need to learn about that you really only go an inch deep. And so it was, it's also this like sampler <laughs> opportunity of a degree. And like the doing this podcast, so I have a, um, a rising junior going in you know, high school this year. So she's thinking about college. So that's another selfish thing. When I have to do these podcasts, I, I talk about how people decided on their major. So it's a, another selfish thing I get out of this podcast. So she's really good at science and math. So so we'll see. So what did you do after you graduated? Uh, so I felt like my undergrad taught me how things work. Um, but what I was really curious about at that time is I, I always had an interest in psychology and took, a, you know, intro to psychology and was like, oh, I'll get it out of my system. Didn't. Um, <laughs> it just made me like it, like it more. And so I went into management consulting to understand more about how people work and how organizations work. And I, it was a really great opportunity to hop into a few different industries and understand how those systems work, but in multiple capacities. So like in one case, it was sort of flight operations. In another case, it was M&A. In another case, it was bankruptcy. So it was really cool to be able to just, you know, jump in and get a snapshot of like how people think and make decisions in these different organizations and the higher ups. Um, but interestingly, through that experience, it was like an amazing sampler experience, but I also really missed building things. And there's a very different, it's a very different experience to give someone advice of like, hey, here are a few different options you can, should consider based on me jumping in for a few months and our pre-existing, you know, knowledge of frameworks and how to you know, solve problems. But it, but building a thing and seeing if people buy it and like, uh, like the, <laughs> the market will decide if you were right or not wrong versus like just giving someone advice. And so I came back to MIT to really go deep in product development. I did a system design and management master's program, um, and then did an additional, um, engineering product development degree in Singapore to, um, really, really go deep in product development. So, so what, what did you work on at MIT? Like what type of research or any type of projects that you were involved in? Yeah, so I originally decided to go to school for studying design for developing countries, and that morphed and pivoted um, to 
being more in the abstract of like helping people and then ended up uh, focusing more on medical applications. So I was picking a thesis uh, for my degree and said, you know, what do I care a lot about to do a good job? And thought back to how I've had melanoma three times. And through that experience, you know, it was really frustrated as a patient. I felt blindsided, right? Like as a stage two melanoma, even if it's not in- How old were you? So what, so kind of what happened? I was 22. Um, So it was like just concluding college. And um, I was home for the summer um, working in the Dallas area for, for an internship and um, went to my PCP and said, you know, Hey, I have this mole on my back. My mom says I should check it out. Yep. I feel like this is a waste moms of do. time. Yeah. As moms right. do. Moms are always right. That's one thing I've learned Absolutely. <laughs> in my life. Um, but then, um, yeah, he biopsied the dark part and the light part and mm-hmm. said like, Hey, we could send you to a dermatologist, but it's going to take you a while to be seen. And this, this guy looks gnarly. And so and then about a month later, I found that it was, you know, a stage two melanoma and I had to get a, a large section of skin taken out of my back. And so now I have a scar about this long on my back. But so, so but obviously if you would have waited, you know, who knows what else could have happened. So if you're waited for that dermatologist appointment, right? Yeah. So it's good that your primary care physician took action. Um, So this ended up being the foundation for building a company. So how did that come about? I I wish I could draw a straight line. (laughs) We we jumped to the end (laughs) and we raised a seed round. Exactly. But um, uh, basically started started doing research in my master's program at MIT, interviewing a lot of patients who had skin diseases, but also primary care doctors who dealt with them and dermatologists to understand and build a map of like, what are the areas of success, but also failure? Where are there ways to improve this process of, you know, identifying skin diseases and potentially how technology can help. And learned through that experience that, you know, patients do have very little information to operate on um, and, and they have to make big decisions. So patients have limited information, but they usually go to a Google search bar first. Right. And that is horrific. Like I, you don't want to do that because all roads lead to one thing. Everything is cancerous. Pretty yeah. Much. And in this case it actually was, you know, but most of the time yeah. it's a fault. It can be a false positive all the way, you know, from you should stay home and see it resolve to, you need to you need to go to the ER right away, right? It can be really hard as a patient to understand where to go. And so we did actually originally start with a, a tool for patients at home, but then we've shifted to addressing other areas because our overall mission, right, is to make sure patients with skin diseases get from sick to healthy faster. There are a few different ways we can do that. Um, one is, of course, patient navigation and helping them with that, but then also helping primary care doctors who deal with two thirds of skin disease cases, yet because they only spend about a week in medical school learning derm, um, we've found that they've misdiagnosed about 50% of those. Um, And they're trying their best, right? They only have so many resources. They're amazing um, people, but they they could use a little bit of help through a smartphone, you know, and some magic AI. 
so, but those numbers are staggering, right? So you said 50% of skin disease cases are misdiagnosed by a non-specialist physician. That's because there's not enough dermatologists. So a lot of primary care physicians are the ones saying, okay, let me figure this out. And 50% are misdiagnosed. Mm-hmm. Out of the 2.3 billion people that have skin issues every year, like it, that, I mean, it just, it, there's an absolute need and issue here that needs to be addressed. So was that why you're like, okay, I think there's an opportunity to build a company around this. Like, did you ever, did you know you wanted to start a company that, you know, kind of what, how did you decide that this is, you know, something that you could actually build a product around? Yeah. Um, so I moved to Boston a few months earlier than my grad program started and did um, volunteering with a few different startups in the area. So I did have a little bit of a bug of like trying to understand a little bit more about startups and what they're all about before starting my grad program. Um, but then I think through understanding the sheer volume of the problem, right? 2.3 billion people in the, around the world have skin disease issues every year and on average more than once. Um, and how the current system and structure is set up in like who's incentivized to pay what when, why in the US and internationally. And um, how in a lot of medical innovation, at least in my experience, this is an opinion, it's, it's not a fact, um, but, but patients are often like the fourth or fifth stakeholder considered, right? They're first thinking, how do we you know, solve a problem for health insurance or how do we solve a problem for pharma or, you know, um, and it's it's like patient considered right they're like how, how can we help patients but that's not you know the number one driving principle um even if in marketing <laughs> they say it is which you know there's a common discrepancy there and um and i realized that they're just you, you know i just didn't see anyone solving it in a in a way that um put patients first and um And so then have iterated on a product, right? Pivoted a few times, um, now focused on, you know, helping those primary care doctors much better, you know, accurately identify and triage cases to accelerate the cases they need to send to dermatologists faster, like hydrogenitis superativa, it's HS, I'll call it. Um, It affects over 1% of the population. A lot of primary care doctors really aren't taught about it. And um, patients are misdiagnosed for seven to nine years before they get referred to a dermatologist. Like they just sort of drain the, the region and, and the, by the time they get referred, the dermatologist is like, hey, we have amazing products and solutions for this disease, but it's kind of too late, right? Like you've already had a lot of damage to your skin and you've just been living with it. And so um, the examples like that, examples like, a patient can walk into an ER with um, a a Lyme rash, and it'll commonly be diagnosed with cellulitis, which is a different condition, right? Lyme is one of those really tricky ones, especially in (laughs) New England. It's uh, more on people's minds, but um, there are just uh, quite a few different examples where a patient could have, if that primary care frontline person had more information at their fingertips, they could have made a more informed decision about that patient seeking care or getting getting the care that they need. And so that's that's the problem that we're like, okay, we can we can really help with this problem. And how did you figure out like this was a great 
or you know, amazing use case for AI? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's honestly a straightforward use case for AI, like medical image analysis, image analysis in general is like better done by computers and experts. Now, the best way to do it is to combine those forces, of course, to, to bring in expertise and human understanding, problem understanding context with a computer assistive capability in one specific segment. But um, we realized that, you know, image analysis is straightforward with AI. Um, but the other components of the business are more challenging, the business model. Physician workflow is critical to, like, to a technology like this. How do we help solve a, a physician's problem in that moment? Um, and so it, it was these other, so, so it's a straightforward implementation technologically. Um, I mean, it's still hard, <laughs> but intuitively, but then there are the other components of the business that have been more challenging to figure out over time. Well, let's dissect that a little bit, un unpack it a bit. So, but on the tech side, like how did you get the, data set built of, you know, actually building out that capability? Yeah, so the data is like the backbone of our pitch and is really critical for driving a highly accurate AI tool. Because if you don't have the cases to train a computer, just like if you don't have the cases to train a medical student or a resident, then how, do, how can you expect them to be able to identify that condition in the future? Um, and so, what we've done is we've gotten really creative with it um, because what we found is that there are a lot of photos of melanomas and uh, benign moles on the internet. It's like a fun <laughs> computer science problem for people to do. But when it comes to psoriasis or eczema or shingles or rosacea, there are actually a lot fewer photos available that haven't been curated and collected that are. And so we, um, built relationships with a lot of different dermatologists. In many cases, about we brought in about 100,000 photos over the, you know, in the like eight to nine months leading up to our raise. And about 40 to 50% of that data um, came in this, the form of old Kodachrome slides. Mm. I think I have an example <laughs> right here of, uh, wow. yeah, um, <laughs> so it was basically like, these very senior dermatologists adopted, you know, amazing Nikons um, in like the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, and have these photo collections with the associated diagnosis that they tracked. The, so there's some <laughs> dermatologists who are more uh, dedicated to it than others because uh, photo collection is really not part of clinical workflow unless you're getting a biopsy and a surgery, right? Really, there's there aren't a lot of reasons that doctors take photos of conditions, especially common ones. And so we've scanned these old slides at like a high resolution um, and, and have them digital now that we can uh, train our machine learning model on. Got it, okay. Well, let, now let's talk about the business side. So how did you figure that out? Like, did you focus on a particular area that, you know, the, the, you know hey, we could start to build a company around this area and then expand from there. And then how did you engage with doctors and, you know, I, this is not to replace dermatologists. This is to aid and help, right? So it's not displacing dermatologists. There's an absolute need for that uh, as physicians. But this, so, so how did you kind of build out that business side of getting doctors and having people understand what your capabilities were? Yeah. So um, I think the tricky thing is you can't carve out one thing, business model or 
you know, use case or right. Everything has to work in tandem. And that, that's what makes it tricky because it's like a, a find and search algorithm versus like being able to map the whole system. Right. That's good. <laughs> Forgive <point>. my yeah. <laughs> engineering yeah, strategy sense. for breaking down a market. But um, from, um, so we pivoted a few times. We originally started off in melanoma and identifying that. And there were a lot of challenges associated with that. Some of them being, um, it's really hard to get someone to pay for preventive work, even if it's way cheaper to find a melanoma at stage zero versus stage four. It's just, still no one's like, oh, we want to pay for it, right? <laughs> so, um, and then another one is regulatory, right? Any product that identifies um, or provides any sort of feedback that's actionable and useful is, is FDA regulated. Um, and so, um, so we pivoted away from that and toward patients and addressing actually genital conditions because we had physician alignment because uh, patients often delay or don't seek care if they have a genital skin condition because of embarrassment, a whole host of different things. And so we could actually help accelerate that care, a few different things, um, but then really for <laughs> once again, business model and regulatory reasons, we shifted away and um, focused on primary care. Um, I guess your, your question was like, how did we figure those things out and go through that process? Or like, can you, can you break down your, yeah, like, like how did you, like, how did doctors figure out like, wow, you know, this can help me with, with my patients? Yeah. So there was a, so we've interviewed over 500 different stakeholders in, in this field, including over 50 primary care doctors. So you know, over a hundred dermatologists at this stage. And it was really about like, what, like, how are they thinking in that moment of like clinical encounter and how can we help them? So what we found out is that like for a case, like a, like a mole that's suspicious, right? That has like, you know, a physician on high alert because they're thinking like what, you know, first off they're thinking, you know, <laughs> what, what are the critical things that could kill this patient? And if it is suspicious of skin cancer, honestly, they're not like, my primary care physician, they're more likely to refer out those cases, especially in Boston, um, to a dermatologist for liability, for, you know, wanting to make sure that patient, you know, doesn't get cut up too much, you know, like a lot of different reasons. Um, and, but then when it came to other skin issues like psoriasis, eczema, rosacea, these are things that the patient could potentially, you know, live with for a while. Uh, they're frustrating for the patient for itchiness or other things, but they're not, you know, they're not activating this, like, what if the patient could, um, you know, die from it? And so often what we've seen is like, they can't refer out all those cases, right? So one out of every four patient visits has a skin disease involved. They can't refer out all those cases to a dermatologist. And so they make a best guess based on their training, based on the information available, Sometimes they send text a photo <laughs> to a dermatologist friend. Sometimes they pull in a colleague and say, hey, I think this is fungal. What do you think? Um, and so we realized that those are the cases, like rashes and other conditions that aren't on this like super high um, risk category of potentially precancerous or cancerous or like highly infectious. Um, these are other conditions. And so realize that they are, they would love a dermatologist to be sitting next to them <laughs> saying like, Hey, here are the things you should be looking at. Here are the things you should be considering. Here's like guidance on what you should probably do next. And so in our case, uh, we can help with, you know, the 
the first two questions, right? Taking a photo, really in our case, two photos, getting some basic information about that patient that every case involves, like the age of that patient. And like, is it itchy or burning or um, like, are there any other sensations around that condition? And giving that physician right away, like what a physician, what a dermatologist would see right when they walk in the door. Like here is a short list of the most visually similar conditions to the picture you just took to enable you to know the right questions to ask to make sure you're triaging that patient correctly or as correctly as possible. <laughs> wow. Okay. Well, this is all becoming very real to me because I have a confession. Mm. I have eczema mm. and I've had it since I was a teenager and I itch all the time, all the time. Because <laughs> I don't like to medicate over medicate. Like I know there's things I could take, but I'm just like, man, eh, I'd rather just be itchy than have, you know, you know, a steroid ointment on my skin. So, uh, so I made me realize with COVID how much I touched my face. <laughs> <laughs> Like, and I'm like, oh, I can't do that. But anyway, so this, so if, you know, the first time I went into the, to my primary care physician, they could have diagnosed me versus, you know, having me go to a dermatologist. Hmm. Yeah. And so, so um, what we found is that uh, dermatologists um, can, they play more, more functions, but two, two primary ways that they add a lot of value is just narrowing down the differential, like getting, you know, the right diagnosis. Um, and also like, what are the appropriate treatments if you have a condition? So in the case of like psoriasis and eczema and other conditions, there really isn't like one killer drug that, um, <laughs> solves yeah, no, all the problems. I've, I've, I've used different ones. So yeah, you experiment and different yeah. over-the-counter stuff. So yeah. Well, the value that a dermatologist provides in that case is like maybe a PCP didn't know you had eczema, but then the dermatologist will know like based on your medical history and some things you have or haven't responded to, we can try this. Hopefully we're going, um, that's another place for AI to be applied is to say like, based on this patient's information, how do we get the right uh, product for that patient. Yeah, you know, personalized for, medicine, right? <laughs> exactly. That's yeah. um, a little bit different than how we're using it. But right. but if your uh, PCP could have said like, hey, this is really out of my wheelhouse, you know, I, I'm not going to be able to determine the right treatment for you. We better accelerate you. Perhaps you could have gotten on the right medication faster. Well, if I'm a dermatologist, I want to see people that are, you know, need me the most because mm -hmm. if there's only a, so many dermatologists and there's all these patients you want to make sure that their time is best spent with the people that need the most you know the higher risk care yeah I, i'm itchy yeah it's an inconvenience um but it's not you know something that's you know life-threatening so um yeah no it's it's it makes a world of sense now so you you mentioned this before you met your uh you, you met your co-founder at Improv. So I think this is the first time I ever heard that. That's a cool way of, of finding your, your co- So, so how, how did that happen? Yeah. Um, I, don't, I don't know if there's any sort of playbook for finding your co-founder. I know some people find them at work or, or other places. I think for us, um, it showed that we were both like open-minded because there are a lot of people who talk about doing improv. <laughs> <laughs> Very few who actually go sign up for a class and, and you know, complete that class. Um, but I think we, you know, it's, it's one of those environments where the people that you meet every week, 
you are saying yes and learning how to say yes and support the other people in the room because it's not about you and you being funny. That's like one of the first principles you have to learn in improv. This is not stand up, right? It is <laughs> how do we as a collective team stay in the same brain space and support each other and hopefully that creates a funny show. And I think um, that's been a really good bedrock for our relationship because in a startup, you have to think like, how do I use my time most wisely and efficiently? So it's really like almost the only thing you can control as, as a startup with no resources. And, um, but also like, how do we stay open-minded because we're gonna have to make pivots and like be really empathetic for uh, customers or users to figure out what they want and be able to build a product that meets their needs. Otherwise, you know, you're not gonna sell something. Um, and so I think that that's formed a really good way for us to be able to communicate. I almost wish everyone <laughs> should do improv because I think it's a very different set of muscles. I think corporate environments uh, reward criticism, right? Like, oh, you, you, you avoided us to, to do a bad thing, but they don't reward open-mindedness because people don't want to sound dumb or like, you know, they don't want to share a half-baked idea because it's not fully baked. So, don't want criticism and, and so I think like improv creates a environment for you to sort of be yourself um yeah I could talk forever about it though <laughs> yeah no it's it's definitely like you said it's something that um would be a good experience for all to participate in and it's uh it's frightening <laughs> like for it's scary up it's there and not have like any script or just you know, you're just gonna roll with it like I just I remember I used to watch that that show whose line is it anyway and mm. that, that was just a fun fun show those guys were amazing yeah. Um, well, let's talk about the fundraising process. Mm. So you raised, um, you know, angel investment from an amazing list of, when I saw the angels that backed you, I mean, Esther Dyson, Andy Palmer, Bob Davoli. I've never met Bob, but I, I'll never have this. I'll never forget this memory. Cause I used to read like business week when the internet 1.0 bubble was growing mm -hmm. and he was on the cover as like representing the venture capital industry. Cause everyone was like investing in all these dot coms and he wore this yellow suit. I don't know if he still has that yellow suit, but there, if you Google his name, I'm sure that <laughs> that image is out there. So uh, I, I've never met him. I know he's uh, his track record as an investor is amazing. So how did you go about raising capital at that stage? And then you recently announced your, you know, more institutional $2 million seed round. So talk about the fundraising process for a company like, like you know, you've been building. Yeah. So I think fundraising is tricky. It's different for everyone. Um, so it's, it's hard to say there's a playbook, but I think that there are some like guiding principles that are helpful and useful. So uh, we raised about, um, you know, our, our first round of funding last summer we closed um, and we closed it on July 3rd, the thinking that it's terrible to fundraise July 4th through the end of August. So, because <laughs> you're Good sort thinking. of like trying to get a lot of people excited to move, right? To, to uh, take an action. Right, commit, uh, write a check. And it's hard to do if someone's like, oh, I'll be on vacation and wipe this vineyard for a week. <laughs> <laughs> um, and because you're sort of relying on everyone talking to their friends, you know, and saying like, hey, there's a really amazing company. Um, 
But so we, we closed our round of funding last summer and that included like, you know, CTOs of large health tech companies, you know, a few dermatologists. Um, so, so people who really know our space um, and then some like super angels in Boston. And then in this most recent round, um, we uh, were aiming for like 1 million and ended up closing 2 million, which is you know, wow. awesome, especially in this climate, right? When yeah. <laughs> things are more uncertain, I think AI and healthcare does have the wind at its back now because right. a lot of people have realized, okay, our current <laughs> system is not going working. We need to <laughs> improve a few things and make it more scalable. Um, and, um, and so I think there are a lot of different things that I learned through the Techstars program and, and personally doing it. Some of the top ones that were really helpful for us is like, be yourself. I think there's this temptation to fit yourself into this like Mark Zuckerberg mold of what an investor wants to see. And that can be helpful in a few things. Like I learned to say the word MIT in the first two minutes of an investor meeting because people told me to do that in, in Techstars. I didn't want to do that. <laughs> it feels yeah. self-promoting in a gross way, but I learned that. Um, You're in and, sales mode. You have to. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, and a lot of why people invest in their first phase, even if they don't realize it, is for the team. And, right. yep. um, um, and then I think uh, being systematic about it, I think when we looked at our numbers, uh, it was 90% of people said no to us. And we still have, you know, amazing and wonderful investors in our round, but like, that's a tough hit rate if you're not used to that. Um, and, you know, running a systematic process, making sure we do follow-ups that same day or like within 24 hours of meeting people, because I think people are trying to get to know you in a very quick period. So if you can put your best foot forward, if someone asks for a deck, send them a deck within like an hour, right? Like that. Uh, there's this like conflation of speed with competency. Um, so why, why not take advantage of that? Um, and, um, and then I think for us, um, having a really good lead was really helpful. Um, our lead investor chose to be our lead like within two or three weeks of uh, COVID like erupting, which a lot of investor conversations I had at that time were like, oh, I'm on pause. I want to see how things pan out. And it was really great to have our uh, lead investor who has operated a company during a downturn. So they like <laughs> have dealt with crisis situations in the past and, and have figured things out um, to, to have them like back us. And they brought in some of their like limited partners in their fund. Um, and then we're able to like be on reference calls with other investors considering investing in that. I think it's just like a lot of work, right? Just like it's, a, you know, it is a six month full-time job um, to do. A thing that I learned interestingly as a woman, um, which I, it's, I very few sample, you know, like I haven't run a controlled study to see if this is true, but it seemed to be true at a certain point is if someone else introduced the company or me uh, to a person, you know, like, got on the phone or talked in person about us before I talked to someone that seemed to be a lot stronger of an indication of if they would invest um, versus if I talked to them first and they only got really information from me. Um, 
And so having our, our lead investors be able to do that. In one case, we have an amazing primary care physician advisor who like pitched us to a firm who ended up investing and it was, you know, a guy, which you know, maybe I'm saying things that are controversial, um, but like the numbers are out there, right? It's like less than 3% of VC money goes to like, like, a, like companies with a woman on the founding team, much less a female CEO. Um, so improve big time. Yeah, we need to improve big time, but also just need to like keep an eye on what are the ways to hack this, right? To because um, this is silly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so yeah, that is, uh, I, I like to hear, well, all right, let me rephrase that. Uh, I don't like to hear those stories, but I think it's important to have those stories shared so that people have awareness, um, because that's not how it should be. So I hope some of the things that have been happening over, you know, the past couple of years, even, um, you know, are going to change things for, uh, female, minority entrepreneurs. So I, 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 you know, knock on wood, I hope things are finally heading in the right direction. There seems to be an acute awareness. So. Yeah, I do uh, think um, women are moving faster in getting more parity than other minorities. And so there's, right. uh, I can only speak to my own experiences. I, you know, I, I am the wrong person to share on other experiences, but I do know the case is worse for other folks. Yeah. Now, uh, building a company, you talked about, uh, you know, you, you interviewed uh, lots and lots of doctors and dermatologists. So getting the product right, right, user feedback, like what's the best way for obtaining that user feedback and then translating that into an actual product? Yeah. Um, so that's a complex question that I spent two master's degrees learning <laughs> <laughs> from MIT. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so, but I guess some of the principles and things that we learned are, um, don't bias a person before, you know, don't say like, Hey, here's my thing. Isn't it cool? Um, <laughs> uh, you have to be like, what you first question is what are the prop, you know, what are the top five problems you face? And if you're not in the top five, like you're in trouble, right? <laughs> so maybe give it an idea, you know, focus on a different problem for that person, find a, you know, a different person with a similar problem to what you wanted to solve, whatever that is. Um, but then another is like just, uh, you know, creating an environment where they feel like they can share um, information um, in person and, you know, voice or like, ideal, you know, I guess these days, Zoom video conferences are important because you're trying to pick up on a lot of information that wouldn't be filled out in a survey. You know, in the first few stages, you don't even know the right questions to put in the survey to get the right information. Um, and um, like rapid feedback. So one of the biggest changes that we made in the company after closing this round is switching to a two-week scrum process where at the end of every two weeks, we have three plus primary care physicians and multiple dermatologists that we're having review subsets of the um, product in order to get their feedback and then be able to incorporate that in the next two weeks of iteration. So we can have many, many cycles before we, you know, launch a product um, in order to make sure that we're designing for that person because that person should be driving this. Also, building out our clinical advisory board because we're making a product for, 
you know, primary care physicians and other frontline providers, um, uh, making sure we had, you know, infectious disease doctors, dermatologists, primary care doctors um, on that board. So they're driving the bus on so like the clinical decisions that we're making. Also right now we're bringing on a medical director of dermatology and a medical director of primary care in order to make sure those voices are driving. Like what, what is the, your team look like and what's the plan in terms of growing it? Yeah. Um, so we're a, a bit of a weird company because most of the times uh, startups spend like the vast majority of their capital on headcount and, you know, the people at the table to build the thing. In our case, we have more data related costs of like additional labeling, licensing the photos, and um, making them machine learning ready in order for our amazing people to um, uh, build build magic. <laughs> to me, it does seem like magic. But um, uh, so right now we have um, now five full time people. We just yesterday brought on a lead machine learning engineer. Um, she's amazing, super excited to have her. Um, but you know, also have a, a VP of business development in order to do the data licensing, a director of clinical partnerships to drive the bus on PCP, you know, user adoption. Um, and then me and uh, my co-founder and CTO Pranav. Um, and so we're bringing on an additional full-time machine learning or a, a, a full-time full stack person this fall and that's our squad of full-timers okay all right let's switch things up what's um name three apps you can't live without like your must-have apps that <laughs> all the time uh yeah i gotta look at my phone for this so <laughs> for sure slack um superhuman because it makes me a lot faster email and that's a really important part of my job in headspace I, I meditate every morning and i have for over you know at least two years now how long do you meditate every morning for 10 minutes i've tried to increase it to 15 but like i need to try like I, I haven't really dedicated to doing something like that like it's you know it's 10 15 minutes a day it's not like you're taking an hour out of your day and you, so you just find it set, just sets the right your day on the right foot if I don't meditate, I almost feel like my life is living me and I'm just responding and reacting to things that have to happen. And when I meditate, that allows me to like step back and say what's most important and like name of the game with startups is prioritization. So, mm -hmm. And how do you prioritize your day? Because I'm sure it's a moving target every day. <laughs> I don't know if you want to see my calendar. <laughs> I'm an aggressive uh, calendar-oriented person. Like, it doesn't exist if <laughs> it's not on the calendar. Um, but then time blocking to make sure I'm prioritizing, you know, specific amounts of time on different things. Um, and then... Um, just trying to think, trying to find time to work out either in the morning or most likely in the evening. Um, I find, you know, I want my brain power to go to work and then I can just like go on a three or four mile run in the evening and I don't need brain power for that. <laughs> but then you're probably running or something or whatever you're doing. And then all of a sudden your mind filters back into work in a very good manner. Cause then all of a sudden you're thinking creatively or thinking something that's been, you know, bothering you then all of a sudden you kind of have that clarity when you're just running at least i i find running to be very helpful with that 
Yeah, even then I, I still sometimes play music. My best thinking time is actually brushing my teeth because I can't be looking at my phone or <laughs> it's gonna be brushing my teeth. That's awesome, I love that, that's great feedback. How about any uh, podcasts or book recommendations that you would uh, share, share with our audience? Yeah, in terms of book recommendations, um, I think I read the book How Emotions Are Made and it was really transforming, also anti-fragile, because it sort of changes your mindset of like what's possible, right? Um, And like how to design your life. Um, In terms of podcast recommendations, um, I have been a Tim Ferriss fan, even though they can be really long interviews. Um, And Reply All, I've gotten addicted to. Planet Money is one of my favorite ones. And then Modern Love as well, because it's just like a very different, very different than any, you know, business related podcast. And it, it hooks you, right? They have amazing stories. Yeah, I totally agree. Okay, so you talked about this a little bit already, but um, what else do you like to do outside of work? <laughs> um, I do improv now on Zoom, which is weird but (laughs) we're making it work and planning to do performances on zoom soon um i this is more of a guilty confession but i i do um relax through watching television um i especially love like black mirror and um other shows like that and gilmore girls um and i think just um i tend to get into work mode pretty you know and and I have blinders on you know I don't see a lot of things happening and people in my life are like how did you not notice that (laughs) thing um but so uh it's really helpful for me to like unplug on at least one day every weekend and just like read a book or do a face mask or or you know and I've had to like be really intentional about planning that time otherwise you know work seems to take over a lot yeah no doubt Well, Susan, thanks so much for taking the time to walk us through your background story, all the great advice for other entrepreneurs, and of course, the very important, meaningful work you're doing with Lumen DX. Thank you so much for the honor and pleasure of being on your uh, show. If there's any way I can be helpful for you or listeners, um, please don't hesitate to ask. Um, Yeah, thank you so much. Well, that's our show. I hope you found it useful and entertaining. If you did, please make sure you subscribe so you'll get future episodes. Also, please consider leaving us a five-star review and share this podcast with all of your friends and colleagues in the industry. It all really helps us out. Last but not least, don't forget to visit VentureFizz.com, the most trusted source for tech and startup jobs, news, and insights. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.